Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Telos Running Podcast. I'm Steve. I'm here with Kristen. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) And this is episode three of our podcast. We're excited to bring to you a rather unusual episode, at least unusual uh, for putting me in an uncomfortable position. But I'll get into that in just a moment. First of all, we'd like to go through uh, a few basic introductory points. Number one, thanks to everyone who's been listening to us. We're really happy to hear that there have been folks who have found us on iTunes or wherever they find their podcasts. Uh, We're also very happy that it seems that there has been a positive, some positive feedback coming back from not only the content that we plan on bringing to you on a weekly basis, but also that uh, people are responding to Kristen as a as a host, and that folks are interested to hear her story and where she's coming at. Um, most people who are listening to this podcast probably know a little bit about my story, but after today, you're going to know a shit ton more about my story, whether you like it or not. So, um, so please, if you if you have are enjoying us, then uh, give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you're enjoying us, um, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear if there's a specific topic you'd like to discuss on our. We'd like like us to discuss on our podcast, or if you've got some feedback about what we're bringing to you and how we're bringing it to you, then I'd love to hear it. You can reach me at sisson at tellusrunning.com. Um, secondarily, hopefully you're hearing a higher level of fidelity. We certainly believe that we've got some, some better gear here. Uh, we've, we had our, our sound engineer show up yesterday and set us all up. Shout out to Team Murder. To Tyler Cummings, who came on in here and set this thing up. Hooked us up with some awesome equipment and hopefully a better sound. Yeah, so we are... Uh, hoping to continue to adjust the podcast. We're hoping to maybe have a, a more standard intro, uh, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little music. Maybe some Cardi B. Maybe some Cardi B, or, I mean, God forbid, I play some Dad Rock Wilco or some shit. Maybe I'll just get my guitar start banging on it. Mm, I think we'll do no music. <laughs> okay. But we are interested in raising the quality of this podcast up, but really the interest of this podcast is to bring conversations to you between Kristen and I and maybe other guests as time comes through. And um, it's not really about making it super fancy. It's a lot more about getting good quality information to you all about running and running related topics. Just to remind you, our mission is to train the body, the mind, and the heart for what the race requires. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to be relevant today with our conversation, but um it's a little there's a little bit of heart training in this uh maybe so Hmm. well there'll be a little bit of everything i'm sure so anyway i want to thank everybody for uh listening to us and giving us a shot so if you really enjoy us also it would be great if you would tell your friends uh your running friends who might find some our information to be valuable um and hopefully we'll keep this entertaining so this week this episode is going to be all about sisson which oh boy i'm not so I'm not so excited about I'm not so excited about it being the Steve show. I'm pretty excited to put you in the hot seat. So Kristen, tell us a little bit how this came to be. How did we, how did we, did you get me to even say that I would be willing to let myself be interviewed? Okay, well, first of all, it was your idea. What? <laughs> was it? 
Really? No. No, it really was. It was your idea. Um, And I wasn't paying attention to anything you were saying and just agreed to it. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was eating popcorn or something. Um, So I threw the, the idea of interviewing you out to my teammates and gathered some questions. So I have a list of nine questions that I'm going to ask you. We're going to really strive to keep this episode to our, uh, you know, 35, 45 minute range. But I have a tendency to go off off the reservation and wander into rather unusual tide pools of running (laughs) discussion and philosophical banter and general mystical theories of life. So who knows where this will take us. Just for our listeners to know... I have no idea these questions. I have not been prepped. This is me dry-fired, so you're getting... I'm not starting easy, either. I wouldn't expect you to. Uh, The group of people that you asked for a list of questions from, I'm certain that they are going to try to take the piss out of me. I know you're going to try to take the piss out of me. So, here we go. You ready? I'm ready. I'm ready and raring to go. Okay. Would you rather... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, we could start there. (laughs) Okay. You tend to test out different workouts and methodologies like Canova, Tin Man, critical velocity work, high intensity speed development cycles. Do you ever feel like you are taking a significant risk with your athlete's buildup? And should an athlete buy into the idea of taking that risk or are they better off not knowing? Hmm. So we're coming at this without any preamble. Uh, This is a great question. So I guess the first part of this question is where am I getting all this shit from? Or is it more along the lines of why I'm comfortable throwing all this shit at my athletes? I guess the first part of the question is because you have a more intense training um, training plan for your athletes, do you ever feel like you are taking a significant risk with their buildup? Absolutely. I always feel like I am taking a significant risk. Um, I don't feel like the risks that I'm taking with the programming that I write are overall systemically risky. I think that they are always grounded in a cycle that we've done previously. They're always grounded in what I know the individual, what I believe a human body can handle. And they're all mo- almost always designed to modulate volume and paces in appropriate ways for the athlete groups that I have. So I do, I do think that there are risks associated with um, throwing so many different systems at my athletes. Uh, but I don't know any other way to challenge folks. I think that if I just kept things um, cycle in, cycle out the same, we wouldn't see the kind of improvements that we've seen over the years. Uh, the programming that I've written has gotten better and better and better. The results, how do I know that? Because the results have been better and better. I have real hard data points to prove that people are doing much better work now than they did before. But I do take risks. Now, those risks are significantly mitigated 
by the following things. Number one, they're mitigated in the fact that I know that my athletes are prepared for a certain volume on a weekly basis. I ask every one of my athletes when I meet with them, when I talk with them, where have you been at from a volume perspective on a weekly basis? I've got athletes in the United States. We talk about that in the Imperial Miles. Um, I've got athletes around the world that I talk to them about it in kilos. But what I'm doing is trying to determine that the amount of volume I'm giving them on a quality workout and the amount of volume I'm giving them on a long run is not beyond what they can handle for the weekly mileage or weekly kilo load that they carry. So that's the first place I start with. I write macro cycles that are designed for 35 to 50 mile per week folks. I kind of have one category there. I have a, a secondary category that's for folks who are like 50 miles to about 70 miles per week. And then finally I'll have a third category which is 75 miles and up. And so when I'm writing the cycles, I'm keeping in mind that the risk is probably greater on the people running the higher mileage volume. Um, and nine times out of 10, my higher volume athlete is my much more vocal athlete. So I usually get feedback. What? Yeah, I usually get feedback from them about the level of risk or where they're feeling niggles or pains or if that shit just didn't work. Um, so yes, I do think there's a risk involved. But I'm also really, I've been doing this a really long time. And so I know when I see issues arise from a volume perspective, is this because of the differences that we've been, that I've changed in this last cycle? Is it because I decided to do more work at critical velocity paces or I decided to add a speed economy cycle to the training? And I usually will see that an injury and or a ache or pain that comes up, comes up because that is something I see in this time of year or in this part of a cycle. So I can determine, oh, this is normal exhaustion, um, not sleeping very well, um, maybe some IT band syndrome, maybe some plantar issues. And I can usually say this is the time of year I see those things. I have a sort of cheater notes that let me remember that this is what happens this time of year. But if I see things that I've not seen before, then I can usually pinpoint and say, okay, I need to really, really pay attention. And then those risks are mitigated again because I'll then reach out to my athletes and start asking them pointed questions that will help me determine whether or not um, this is a problem for one athlete or this is a systemic or program-wide problem. So I look at it from a volume perspective, but the other piece of this program that really makes sense in terms of mitigating risk is that I'm very adamant about making sure people are prepared for that they work on their paces appropriately. We dial in paces much more over the last three to five years in my coaching than I did before. I used to more along the lines let my athletes goal times determine what paces they would run. And I began to realize my athletes, although good people and wonderful people, I couldn't trust them because maybe their goal was to run 15 minutes for a marathon faster than what their body was ready for. And so now I try to put time trials in or I look at previous race results, or I work with athletes primarily who aren't brand new to me. Um, I'm in a new cycle where I'm working with some brand new athletes. So I indicated, I immediately put a, a time trial in. Athletes who have worked with me for many years said, why are you doing a time trial? You never did one before. Well, it's because I've got a bunch of new people and I don't really know exactly where they are. Maybe they haven't raced in the last month or two months. And so, um, so those paces are also another way that sort of mitigates that risk. Um, what was part two of the question? Part two of the question was, should an athlete buy into the idea of taking the risk or are they better off not knowing? 
Um, that's a really interesting question. This goes to your idea of the dumb athlete. Yeah, so... Um, dumb athletes... This is a really complicated question, so I'm going to answer it uh, where I am today because I think that this might surprise some folks who listen to me on another podcast where I have 100 episodes of of discussing the benefits of a dumb athlete. Um, I think that all athletes, if they are capable, should know the risk of what they're doing because that risk, if it pays off, pays off greater because they were an active participant in the process. In the new group that I'm coaching now, that this new online group I'm coaching, um, I have asked my athletes lots of questions and I've told them repeatedly that they are a part of an experiment and that we are working on some new training techniques that I think will be very valuable and very beneficial, but I've not implemented these before with other athletes. Now, many of those athletes I'm working with now, they worked with me in a prior cycle and they saw that I added some new wrinkles in the cycle before that and I let them know that they were operating in that space. So is it better that they know or they don't know? I always think it's better to have an athlete that can understand it. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the athletes that don't care, that are dumb athletes. Again, just to reiterate, a dumb athlete is not a dumb person. A dumb athlete is an athlete that basically decides, I don't really care. I'm going to trust my coach. Um, I think that the kind of athlete who might be a little more neurotic or a little bit more um, that, that does, there might be athletes out there, out there who do not want to know that they are a part of an ongoing experiment. I appreciate that. Um, I would prefer them to know it, and I'm not afraid of it, but I've also been doing this for 20 plus years with this particular population of adult marathoners and half marathoners and shorter distance runners, but mostly that half marathoner marathoner who's got a big life load and has high expectations. And so uh, no matter whether they're from Oslo, Norway, Zurich, Switzerland, Austin, Texas, or um, Modesto, California, it doesn't really matter. They're all dealing with big life issues and they have big race goals. I want them to participate with me and I want them to be cognizant of the risks involved, but I don't want those risks and the cognizance of that risk to negatively impact their experience. If that happens, I just try to stay really open and vulnerable to the process and let them know that number one, I have a pretty good track record. Um, and number two, if the race results are not optimal, that I'll be the one who's to blame. And almost always that usually takes the buck off the athlete and puts the pressure back on me, which is where it should be. So yeah, I know, I understand that it can be challenging to know that you're a part of a, of a experimental method, but I'm not really experimenting that much. I'm still using the basic fundamentals of fitness to get people ready for what the race requires. And I'm just tweaking little pieces along the line to try to optimize our programming. Um, and in the interest of complete and utter honesty, I get fucking bored and I want to see <laughs> what new wrinkles we can throw in um, because this is a really important point. My athletes seem to always be able to handle what I throw at them. Now, whether that's their confidence in me um, or it's their ability to just accept because of the trust or if it's because that's just the way 
it rolls? I don't really know. Um, that's kind of an ongoing mystery for me. Um, it's sort of me trusting the universe that we're doing good work. So, I think I have something to add to that, which is that as one of your athletes, and I've said this to you before, which is that you are not the coach for everybody. You, I think your athletes are particularly drawn to you and your coaching style. Thus, inherently, they're not particularly dumb. You don't wake up at 4.30 every morning or whatever time you wake up. You don't spend 8 to 15 hours a week running miles, working full-time job, being a parent, doing whatever it is that you do and approach your running with a sense of indifference or not wanting to know as much as you can about it. Not to say that we're all track geeks or whatever, but there's a certain level of understanding that I think most most of your athletes have. Um, but the main point there is that your athletes are particularly drawn to you as a charismatic cult leader. You mean I have a type? You have a type. <laughs> <laughs> and I, my father recently said, Steve, it sounds like you're a part of a cult. And I'm like, well, we're not going to all take the Kool-Aid, but... I don't really have a big problem with that. Um, I do think that there's a need for um, community and resonance and people feeling like they're a part of something. I'm, I'm asking people to do a lot, but I'm not asking them to not be a part of their lives. And that's a big difference. Yeah, you're not, you're not vanilla. You're not corporate. You're not going to stand up on a box and give people their workouts, pat them on the back and say, okay, go. Um, and I think part of that too is what mitigates some of that um, – some of that risk that comes along with your program is that you consistently touch base with your athletes in every aspect of their life. How's your heart? How's your mind? What's going on at home? How are you feeling this week? How did you sleep? What are you eating? Who are you seeing for massage work? Who are you seeing for PT? Oh, you're not? Well, get the fuck out of here and go see somebody. Like, what are you doing? Right? Yeah, so. absolutely. That helps. It does. It makes a big, big difference. And it's, yeah, I'm not the coach for everyone, but I can coach anyone. And I'm not say that from an egotistical standpoint. I know that probably sounds a little bit. A little bit. But yep. it just means I know that I will find the person in their running. And if I can find the person in their running, more often than not, we get resonance. And um, there is a type I can't work with. And that's the unmotivated, um, uncaring, I just want to be a part of the cool crowd. Um, and or people usually, who are full of shit. Yeah, and they usually get run off because the level of work required is beyond what they're willing to do. Hmm. Okay. You ready for the next one? That wasn't so, so bad. It wasn't. I got to ramble on. <laughs> Moving on. Okay. In college, coaches are hired and paid by the school. In the private coaching world, you're hired by the athlete. How does this difference affect coaching, and how does it affect athlete behavior? Wow, that's these are very unusual questions. Um, it's a very unusual group you coach. Yes, I mean, the, the, I don't mean that these are these are wonderful questions. They're just coming at me from a different angle than I was expecting. So, um, did you think you were going to relive your glory days? I was hoping not. <laughs> um, I was hoping not, but I have a feeling that there may be one of those questions thrown in the pipe here. So, but we'll see. Um, so 
what's the difference between being a coach of athletes who I get paid to work with them, i.e. my experience at a collegiate level, versus the experience of my athletes who pay me to do that? Right. Is your approach in coaching different? And if so, how? And how does it, how is athlete behavior different between collegiate and adult athletes? You know, I think that this is one of those spaces where the, the answer may surprise people, but I have a tendency to kind of consider that people are more similar than they're different. And so my basic statement is I don't really change it because here's the thing. Everybody, whether they pay me or they don't pay me, expects me to provide a result. And I take that responsibility really, really fucking seriously. And so for me, um, I think this was a challenge for me as a younger coach. As a younger coach, I sort of undervalued the race result of my adult athlete, of the person who paid me. Um, But my experience coaching collegiately made me so race driven in terms of the performance necessary the performance necessarily reflected on my ability as a coach so let's say an athlete that i had who i thought could qualify for the ncaa championships and become an all-american at the ncaa championships if i did not achieve that goal then i knew i hadn't done my job because the athlete was capable and the only reason that kept them from getting there was my ability to coach uh i didn't have that viewpoint before I coached collegiately about my adult athletes. But as I came back from the collegiate ranks and into coaching um, the groups that are people that I coach now, I realized that they were no different and that I had a a predisposition and or a prejudice against their, the value and importance of their command performances. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that initially I coached a lot of people who were relative beginners, who were excited about getting to a finish line, who, didn't feel the need to run their best race performance and were not so excited, not so not so devastated about not getting a result. Um, that group of athletes that I coached, uh, those people at that time, um, I wasn't, I didn't recognize that they had that need in them. And so while I was a really good coach, I don't think I was preparing them. I don't think I was as good a coach as I am now in terms of, really getting down to brass tacks about who people are as people. Um, People would be so excited about hitting a finish line and I would be like, yeah, but you missed your time by 10 minutes and they would not care because they got to the finish line. I think in reference to your question that you asked in the first place, I think I have sort of self-selected those athletes out of my system. Um, They're not excited or as motivated about me because they're intimidated a bit by my, um, my sort of, it's not even sort of, it's my requirement for command performances. And the reason I require those command performances is I want to be my best. And I need to know that there's a end result here and that the end is um, extremely important because the end is how I value the way I did my job. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not on the journey and part of the process either and that I don't love the process. Process is as important to me as the next person. And this podcast, I'm hoping, will be a place where people feel that journey and feel the stories and feel the heart behind everything. But at the end of the day, it's results or reasons. And I I think I did, avoided that for a long time or I, or I 
denigrated people's experiences and I just didn't lift them high enough or hold them accountable or responsible as much as I would I probably should have so now I, I do that much more and does that indicate who's coming to my program and who's working in my program almost assuredly I mean almost guaranteed that um, I have a type <laughs> you have a type okay um did you address how that affected athlete behavior? I, 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 I don't know. Um, my experience of athlete behavior is, uh, you know, I think really it comes down to if people have a good experience of me as their coach, uh, it's because they know I'm invested in them and that their end result and their process is my process. Um, the biggest challenge I have is when I want the result for other people more than they want the result for themselves. And usually that becomes problematic for us and they feel me back away. And they, I, I say, if it doesn't, if we're not equals in this regard, then it's going to be very difficult for me to be your best coach. And I have some people I've coached over the years who that has been in which that has been the case. And the reason I continued to coach them was because I love them as people and we had made a long-term commitment to their ongoing process. But that's not how I want to start. So I want to start with a results-driven athlete who then finds the process along the way. I think it's really, you talk a lot about athletes and your commitment level to them and it being an energy return the energy you put in is the energy you get back. And I think maybe a difference between a collegiate athlete is that, I mean, they're there, right? And they, they kind of have to do the work um, to be there. But it doesn't necessarily mean they have to put in this emotional and mental energy, whereas maybe, and this is just speculation on my part, but whereas maybe your adult athletes, they are there because they really want to be there. But the difference is that the athletes you work closest with are the athletes who give give to you the energy you're looking for. Yeah, I learned something really quickly as a collegiate coach. Um, I had two or three athletes when I first started at the University of Texas with who I worked with. Who I, I didn't recruit that first class that came in. But I had two or three athletes that were all the way the fuck in. And they had much better performances than the ones who didn't. And what I did was recruit. And I just started to recruit the kind of person I wanted in my program. I recruited their mom. I recruited their dad. I recruited their ability to find a finish line and their desire to find a finish line and their ability to communicate in a low-key, relaxed environment while having a huge, audacious, scary, crazy goal on the um, at the end point. And so when I came back from my collegiate experience, I couldn't stop doing that. And I continued to recruit. And I'm still recruiting to this day. I mean, I'm always looking for the athlete that wants it really badly and who the finish, the starting line experience is really important. My job as a coach is to provide a positive starting line experience. What that means is I've gotten the quality workouts in the right place. I got the long runs in the right place. I got the volumes in the right place. I got the, all the work done so that when they stand on that starting line, their goal is within reach. Now, I used to just coach that. But now I've taken, since I coached at the collegiate level, I've taken a much greater level of responsibility for what their 
finish line experiences. And that's how I want to judge myself. I have a win-loss record that I want to pay attention to, just like Bill Belichick pays attention to his. I don't see any difference. Yeah, I think this is kind of going off topic, but with regard to you and recruiting, you definitely still recruit. I mean, (laughs) but you're looking for something, and maybe it's not all that different, but you mentioned looking for the type of person that you want to coach. And it's certainly what, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience and from a few of my pretty close teammates, but not even knowing what I could run, having never coached me, you said I could do this thing. And here we are doing this thing because you saw something in my personality and maybe a certain level of grittiness that you thought, oh, I can work with that. I yeah, can. I have no fucking idea where that comes from either. Like that is... Magic? Some, that's woo-woo magic, spidey sense, weird shit. But yeah, when you sat across from me at the Rogue Bar four years ago, I was like, you can qualify for the Olympic trials. And I had not even seen you run. And you certainly were not the athlete that you are now. But I just knew that what it takes is not the physiological tools. What it takes is um, a huge heart and a willingness to work and uh, someone who is willing to listen to what I have to say, take risks, but um, who wants it really, really badly. And I didn't know if you had all of those characteristics when I first met you, but I knew you had the ones that were most important and that uh, you you were also really curious about the exercise physiology pieces of the puzzle Mm -hmm. because you were comparing what you were doing with the workouts that you were doing, which I wrote, but I wrote for a different level of runner and the level of work that my, the group that you wanted to join was doing. And you're like, why is there a big difference? What's the difference? Am I getting shortchanged here? It's like, no, you can't, babies can't eat steak, right? You got so mad at me when I said that. And you're like, bullshit, I can eat steak. But you, you, you were more capable of gnawing on that meat than anybody else I've ever met. You don't say that ever again. (laughs) But you, you, you were able to take in more than we expected. You were able to do more, but you were voracious and hungry for a different kind of work. And you fought me on it. Um, the other people in that group who were there, they also fought me on it. They, they wanted to get more, but we had to be careful how we did it. But it was then that I realized, okay, you not only is there this desire to um, do your personal best, which sounds a little cheesy, but you were also backing that up with a desire to do hard work. And once those two things are in conjunction, um, it's kind of get the fuck out of the way, give them the work and make sure you don't hurt them. Yeah. And use the C word a lot. Yeah. I've done that a few times. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's talk about, oh, what's your best race and why? My best distance or the best race I've ever run? The best race you've ever run. Whoa. Well, that could be multifaceted question, but the best race I've ever run. Um, wow, that's a tough one. So I'm going to tell a story about a race I ran. So I, I ran my senior year in college. I was running at the University of Texas. Uh, I ran across country. I was ran the cross-country season, which is in the fall, and I had a really poor performance at the NCAA championship meet. The year before that, my junior year, I'd finished 19th in the nation, 
which allowed me to be an All-American. I had a breakthrough race and really went from being a a good a good um, conference level runner to being uh, in discussions of being national class, which was kind of where I'd seen myself from the beginning, but I just hadn't achieved those results. Um, and then I regressed in my senior year at the cross country national championship meet and I finished 31st place and uh, 35th place or something like that and missed all American by one place. And it just woke me up and it told me, I really, really want to be an NCAA champion. I really want to say, I had this command performance that I wanted to achieve. If I run this next season, I'm not going to achieve it. There's no way I can, I can get there. So I, um, so I went to my college coach and I told him, I walked into his office and said, I want a red shirt. Now, the team that I was on was really crafted and put together by a, uh, a coach who worked really hard to make sure that he had a balanced team. And he knew each of his distance runners were going to provide X number of points. He knew that each of his shot putters were going to get X number of points. He knew that his vaulters were going to score points. And he had crafted and designed an entire team around getting the points he needed to get for his conference championship. And that's really where he got paid. That's how he that's how he defined his success because his AD wanted us to win. At the time, it was the Southwest Conference. And so when I walked into his, marched into his office and said, I want a red shirt, he's like, I can't win the conference meet without you. You can't do it. And I was like, well, I've never been a really good person to take no for an answer. I mean, I'll take it initially and then I'll walk away. And I thought about it for about two minutes. And I walked down to my academic counselor and said, if I, how do I, my coach won't redshirt me, but you're required. You need to tell me how I can get a redshirt without my coach giving it. He said, well, you can drop out of school. If you're not in school, then you don't lose your eligibility. But if you stay in school and your coach doesn't give you a red shirt, then you will lose that year of eligibility. So I basically thought about it and I said, so I'm gonna walk down to my coach and tell him that I quit. I've never quit anything like that before. And um, I was on a partial scholarship. Money was always a challenge for me. Um, my dad didn't pay for my school. He told me when I was a freshman in high school, run fast, join the military or study hard. So I ran fast. Um, and so I knew, I was pretty sure that I've walked back down there. I needed to take into consideration that anything could happen. So I walked back and down and said, I quit. And he said, well, if you quit, then you're going to walk on when you come back. So he wasn't going to support me for the next, you know, if I got in a red shirt, he could have paid me the partial scholarship that I had for the, that spring and the next fall, and I could have come back and competed for him. But he didn't have the money to do it, or he thought he didn't have the money to do it, and he wanted the results then, and he used it as a leverage point to get what he wanted out of me. So this long story to basically say that when I joined, when I got to the point of uh, coming back that next year, when I sat out the cross-country season, I sat out the track season, out that track season, I sat out the next cross-country season, and I walked on in my final senior year. Um, I knew that I had gotten what I wanted, but that I had a high level of pressure. So that conference meet, first conference meet indoors, I scored tons of points for my team, and we would not have won that conference meet if I hadn't redshirt. So he won the conference meets the year that he told me that I couldn't redshirt. And I had to drop out. 
when I came back, if he if I hadn't actually dropped out on my own, then he would not have won. I think I scored something like 28 points at that meet. Um, all that is a setup for the most important race I've ever run or the most the best race I've ever run. I was at the NCAA championships indoors my senior year. Um, I was on the starting line having run probably the eighth or ninth fastest time of the year that year. So I knew I could be All-American. I had never qualified for a national championship meet on the track, indoor or out. I'd only gone to the NCAA championship meets in cross country. So, and track feels like a tiny, completely different sport, especially when you get to that starting line, when you don't have a full team there and you don't have a team title on the line so i really felt alone so i really felt like this was just a race for me and i felt huge amounts of pressure i don't think i've ever felt quite that level of pressure up to that point it was probably the biggest pressure race i'd ever run and i was running against some people who were really fast i ran 1350 that year to qualify for the ncaa championship meet um and i was racing against a guy named Jonah Koech, who that summer prior had run 13.15 and was one of the top runners in the entire world. I think he had run the fifth fastest or sixth fastest time in the world that year. This is 1993. So I was like, do I belong? So I had the pressure of wondering if I belonged. I had the pressure of this expectation I had set on myself that I had I put myself really on the line that I was going to be national class and that I could be compete with the best at the NCAA level. And in that race, the race played out very interestingly. The gun went off and Jonah Koech, that 13-15 Kenyan, went off the front and left the whole group. And everybody just sat back. And we all sat back and let him go through the first 800, then through the first mile nobody moved we all sat back probably at this point first we're 25 meters behind him then we're 50 meters behind him then at one point we're almost 100 plus meters behind him he's probably clicking off somewhere around you know 65 second quarter miles or 64 second quarter miles and we're running um slower than that so we're losing two three seconds each lap at a mile into the race i look up and i'm like this is not my best performance. I can be better. I don't know where it came from, Kristen. I don't know where that place came from. I don't know where that voice came out of. But I did something I've almost never done in my life before. I took the lead of that next pack and I just started running towards Jonah Koech. I had no illusions that I would catch him. I just went after it. I gapped that pack by 10 meters, by 15 meters, by 20 meters. And Jonah started coming back. He had, this is right when they had jumbo screens on TVs. We were in the Indianapolis Superdome or the Indianapolis's indoor facility. And they had a big giant TV screen on the wall. And he was looking up and seeing this little white dude from UT who he'd never heard of or never seen before, slowly, little by little, catching him, catching him, catching him. I didn't catch Jonah Koech. Unfortunately, this story doesn't finish with me winning an NCAA championship like I dreamed. But what did happen was two guys bridged the gap between that pack and me, caught me with about 
400 meters to go, which was two laps to go. Then we battled together the next over the next two, and I finished in third place. So one guy caught me. I battled off another guy. Finished the race in 1350. Again, another PR. Um, I think it was just by milliseconds. Um, none of us caught Jonah. We kept catching him and kept catching him, but I think he ended up five seconds ahead of us by the finish line. But I made that race. I made it completely by myself. And I fought off at least one of the two guys that I was racing and kicked in really strong and had a race that was just basically, it defined me as a real contender and as really a really big part of the long-term journey I wanted to have as an athlete. So the funny part of that story is right before the race, my coach said, hey, I had a teammate who was on the line with me. He said, uh, we just had our 400 meter runner um, pull a hamstring in the prelims of his 400 meter dash. And we've got a four by four team that I brought that are all freshmen, three freshmen and this senior who pulled his hamstring. So I want all three of these freshmen to run the prelim at least. So one of you two skinny distance runners is gonna have to run the anchor leg on the four by four in order to make sure that these three freshmen get a chance to compete at the NCAA championship. Who decides who gets to run that race? I raised my hand and said, hey, whoever wins, the, whoever beats the other person in this 5K gets to make the decision. Well, fuck if I wasn't going to take that opportunity. So within 15 minutes, I didn't even cool down. I just stayed on the track after I ran, got third in the nation at, the five, at that indoor national 5K. And then I took the baton, anchor leg, from in sitting in like second place i get the baton the guy sitting next to me is a guy from the university of colorado this huge hulking amazing football player super fast guy i take the baton two steps the guy's off the turn and gone i run a pr for 400 meters our team doesn't qualify but i got to anchor the four by four at the ncaa championship meet which almost nobody ever gets to tell that story so that was pretty cool so i guess it's two of the best races i've ever run all in one <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I got second place at a local race once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, that again, the, the reason that race was so important to me was because um, it taught me that you have to have risk to get reward. And maybe I'd understood that as an intellectual concept, but I never felt it. And I never really taken that risk. Um, and it wasn't until I was uh, I made that risk a few other times to, for pretty good success as a as a runner, but it wasn't until I became a coach that I had started to take more and more risks with my athletes. As that to allude to the first question you asked me was that I still know that if you're not willing to take a risk, you're not going to get the reward. And I am almost for some reason I'm blessed with um, the universe feeling like if I push and press and 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 give my best that it will reward me and it hasn't happened in every case but in most cases it does and i know that the best result will always come from taking those chances and taking those risks yeah you certainly did take them okay so a good follow-up is if you could go back if you just graduated college and you were in prime shape what would you do knowing what you know now absolutely would have would run a marathon no doubt about it um i think the entire distance running world has begun to realize um the value of marathoning and what the marathoning brings to the to the table um it also is brings that it's a viable and reasonable and important uh event um when i graduated 
1993. Uh, it was all about... Uh, it was all about producing, getting the most out of yourself at the sh shorter distances before you moved up to the longer distance. And I guess there's this tendency for people who run the 1500 and the 800 and the 5k and the 10k to think that the marathon is for slower folks or you move up to that later on. But I would absolutely have immediately raced a marathon right off the bat. And then I would have um, committed myself to learning the craft and the art of racing a marathon instead of continuing to play around with the 5k and the 10k where um, the chances that I would have had to have been a Olympian were slim to none. I probably didn't have a chance to be an Olympian in the marathon either, but I would have been a part of an ongoing story that I now see as so valuable and important. I now believe the marathon is the most important race that happens in the sport of track and field. That doesn't mean that the other races aren't important. I love a great 800 meter race and I can argue the merits of the 800 or the 400 hurdles or the high jump or the pole vault as being the most important event that we run in our sport. But for me, the marathon has the ability to resonate not just with the track heads out there, but with the ongoing conversation that we can have with the general sporting public and more importantly with the ongoing conversation that we can have with the distance running community with with the runners who just go out there and do their you know fitness runs so that they can lose their weight or that they can meet their um that they can maybe get their first 5k or they can run their first marathon um i just think that the marathon is just an incredible story and it took me way too long to realize that and I, w I wish I had been a champion for that event for as long as possible. I'm going to freestyle here a little bit and ask you a question you probably don't want to answer. Hey, we're just going to let you guys know you came this whining. <laughs> We've been trying to avoid the fact that Kipchoge, not the runner Kipchoge, but oh our God, little I'd man, my shit. but our little man Kipchoge, the the German short-haired pointer puppy that we have has been making an appearance in this podcast. So Kipchoge, welcome to the Tell Us Running podcast. So if you continue to hear him whining, we apologize. This is uh, this is part of the part of the family dynamic that you're getting right now. So anyway, freestyle, Kristen. All right, freestyle. My freestyle. If you had to take a wild guess at what you could have run in the marathon at your prime, what do you think that would be? I think I probably could have. Um, I think I could have run somewhere around two fifteen. I think maybe it's possible I could have run a little bit faster than that. But the experience that I had watching my heroes like Todd Williams, who was you know a sub twenty eight minute ten um, k guy, you know a sub twenty. I mean the guy ran incredibly fast, and he struggled to run two twelve for the marathon. Um, and I just know that uh, the style of training that we did in the late 80s and the early 90s was so different from the style of training that I coach now and so different from the kind of training that's necessary to be really, really good um, at the marathon that I just think that uh, that probably would have been a bit of a challenge for me, um, creating that kind of uh, – to be ready for the race distance the way that you need to be ready for the race distance at the marathon. Um, I truly think that I probably would not have um, had the kind of success I really 
wish I could have had at the marathon distance. So, um, yeah, I think 215 is where my physical talent sat me. Um, I think that if I had had the ability to train with the modern techniques um, and had been able to do the kind of work that I, if I had had me as a coach, if I had me as a coach now for me as an athlete then, then maybe something like two. 12 could have been possible maybe i can conceive of running five minute miles for 26.2 miles based on the kind of fitness i had but it probably would not have been faster than that i certainly would not have been an athlete that people would have been saying was um you know a gift to the sport or or a game changer in the american distance running scene um i was talented and i was really mentally tough but uh at the time, my skill set was probably not very good. I think I could have run sub 220 day in, day out pretty consistently. Um, but, you know, I was a 1355K guy who was doing that off of 60, 70 miles a week. I eventually raised my mileage, which became problematic for me because I was trying to use those high intensity, you know, high intensity interval plans to get ready for something like that. But yeah, I would have say that somewhere around the 215 range probably would have been where I could have been um and maybe it would have been more like 218 but that's probably ballpark uh athletes I've coached ran 215 um with the same amount of talent that I had probably or maybe a little bit less talent no disrespect Scott McPherson if you're listening to me today um but we were comparable and he ran you know, I think he ran 215, 214. So I think that that's probably around the same spot I would have been. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so, Kristen, we're at 50 minutes for this. So do we want to continue and make this a really long episode or do we want to cut this short and um, come at this next week? What do you think? I mean, I know what the guys would say. So let's do what the guys would say. What would they say? They'd say, keep going. So let's keep going. All we'll right. just make this a longer episode than normal. Okay, how about this? I'll ask two more questions. Okay. So it won't be super long. Oh, let's see. I've got to pick. Okay. Um, as a young runner, what was your biggest vulnerability? When did you understand it? So I guess the question really is, what were you afraid of? And did you ever address it or did you just put it on the side? So you can thank Tomek for that one. Yeah, my biggest vulnerability was definitely that my personality, who I was as a human being, was inextricably linked to my experience as a runner. Um, this is uh, the challenge of having a father who is a competitive, was a competitive athlete. My father loves me loved me and loves me dearly uh and he did an amazing job of raising me as a man as a young boy as a man as an athlete but that complex the complex relationship between a firstborn son and his father and then to have your father be your coach and then to have your father and coach be the person that you look up to the most for a sense of purpose or why you're there um, making my dad happy i was a pleaser for sure so making my dad happy and then making the people around me happy which included my family and then my church and the school i went to all of that got to be a lot for me 
And I struggled with it throughout my junior high career, my high school career, my college career, and my post-collegiate career. It continued to be sort of that thorn in my side that I couldn't, I could not do it for the pure beauty and for the pure adrenaline rush of it, that it had to be attached to a race result and that I had an expectation of where that race result sat in the hierarchy of the people I was competing against, in my own hierarchy, in my father's hierarchy. Now, my dad never put pressure on me in that way. He was never that you needed to get this result. He just knew what I was capable of and I knew what I was capable of. And so therefore, there became a standard at which I needed to hit. Not hitting that standard meant that I was not as good a runner as I thought I should have been, which then meant I was not as good a person as I thought I should have been, which then creates all kinds of difficult, challenging, you know, psychology for your future. And then when you stop running, it's really hard to find your purpose in life at all. Drugs and alcohol can and did get involved in my life in a way of sort of medicating and numbing me to the fact that I never complete, I never accomplished in my running career what I thought I could accomplish. And I was never the athlete that I thought I could be. And so therefore, maybe I wasn't the person I thought I could be, which is why coaching now is so important to me and why I will never not coach. I will coach to the day I die because number one, I want to make sure that people realize that I am good at something. I want the world to know that I put pressure on myself as a coach, but it's not all of who I am. It's I want to prove that I can show my value to the universe. I can show my value to my athletes. I can show my value to myself. I can show my value to my dad by just being me and that me is enough. It took me a really, really long time to realize that. So if I had known that when I was a young boy, if I had been able to see that I was good enough, um, you know, a lot of that had to do with the upbringing and the religious upbringing that I had, the faith-based world that I was in, the entire foundation of it is that you are not good enough and you needed a man to get on a cross to die for you, which I understand for all those folks out there who do have this worldview, I completely respect your worldview, but I don't like what that does to the complex of a young growing man or woman, boy or girl, that they are cons- that they can't consider themselves worthy, that they needed that this thing to happen for them to be good enough. If that's the place you come from, and then you add on to it pressure, like I did, I'm not saying I mean these are these are first world problems, people. I get that these are first world problems, but I think if I had been able to believe I was good enough and that I was worthy, then I could have had a career with which, which maybe would have been a lot better, um, which assuredly would have been a lot better. It also would have led me down the path of thinking much more critically about mental training concepts. I was very into woo-woo new age, um, where's magic coming from at a young age because I was in search of a kind of transcendental mystical experience with the God that I believed in. And when that didn't happen, I kept looking for it in other places. Running was a practical place to try to find it. And it took me forever to find it uh, in a mystical way with running. Finally found it running on trails and finally found it um, in other ways. But that was my biggest vulnerability was 
not viewing myself as worthy enough. And so uh, now some people might say that that would have should have fueled me to being a better runner because, you know, it makes you it makes you tougher, it makes you angrier. But I was never a really good angry runner. I always produced, I always ran so much better when I believed that the people around me were helping me achieve it. I think my dad always used to say that he thought I would do better when I was angry. But that's because when I was angry, I would get a result. Um, I was definitely mentally tougher when I was angry. But I think I was a better runner when I took risks like I did in the race I described to you about that 5K at the national championship. I recognized I was worth more. I could do more and I was better. So I took the risk to go get it. When I'm angry, I didn't take risks like that. I would just sit back and wait and wait and wait and then I'll kick those motherfuckers and, you know, as I say, cut their heads off and shit down their throat. But it would all happen at the end of the race. Yeah, you get the win, but it doesn't feel as much of a beautiful race. And people know I'm really addicted and attached to not just getting a result, but running an absolutely beautiful race. Did I answer the second part of that question? I think, no? well, no. You could probably say more on that, which is, did you did you ever address that that battle, that that vulnerability? And if you did, do you feel like you, how did you do that? Did you overcome it? So I did, but not as an athlete. I think I'm still waiting for that journey. I think that's this goal that I've set now um, to try to run under 250 at the 2020 Boston Marathon. There, I said it. There it is. It's oh, out there. that was my next question, <laughs> which was, what's next? What's next is that. So um, I think that as an athlete, I still I still need to um, address that. I ran. I tried to run a sub 240 marathon in my for, on my 40th in my 40th year. Uh, but I didn't approach it. I approached it just as a as a thing to do and a way to get um, just a thing to do on my fortieth birthday, rather than it being part of an ongoing journey. And um, and and really wasn't viewing myself as an athlete at the time. I was just viewing myself as um, this is a thing I could do. Prior to that, or around that same time, I was running um, Pikes Peak Marathon. I trained a couple of years for that, and I think. I tried hard to get over it, but at that point, I was still a square peg trying to get into a round hole. And I think as an athlete now, I'm round, and I can fit what I think is the best thing for me, which is to not have those hard edges, to be rounder and more about the process. And I'm looking forward to doing hard quality workouts and getting in long, hard runs that are I'm going to fail at, and I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm going to say, hey, this is part of the process. This is part of that journey. And then I'm going to expect myself to get that extra 10% out of myself in that final between the gun going off and finding the finish line because I'm not going to train it completely at 250 paces because I'll probably break at 50 years old. But yeah, I think that the next time that that will happen is in my getting ready for the Boston Marathon. And then probably the big thing will be in the running of that race. So I'm really excited about that kind of tossed this off about two years ago as a oh, crazy thing to do. But um, it's now a real thing and something I'm pretty excited about doing. Cool. That's it. That's what I've got. That's it. So uh, after you guys hear this, if you want to hear more questions, we'll do this in some future episode. If you don't, then let us know and we will. You're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'm sure. As you can tell, I have no problem continuing on and on and on. Um so yeah, I, I am a little bit uncomfortable talking about myself until you actually start me talking about myself and then I can't shut the fuck up. So 
<laughs> Hopefully you guys found this interesting. Um, if so, let us know. And if not, then definitely let me know at sisson at telosrunning.com. Kristen, thank you for being my fantastic and wonderful interviewer. It was my pleasure, kind and, of. And uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Um, we'll sign off now and hope to see you next week. Same time, same place. <laughs>